I was hoping 2021 would be a bit better for us, but it's not looking promising so far. No, I'm kidding. I still think there's hope. Maybe. <laughs> but anyways, welcome to 2021. Welcome to season two of The Killer Kind. I have got quite the case for you today. And what I mean is this one was confusing. I started to go back and find another case to cover, but this this one does have a happy ending-ish. A suspect was convicted after 46 years. But honestly, the story this man gave is just bizarre in a way that you have to think there's no way it's true. But after 46 years and DNA evidence connected to the crime, why lie? And not even that, the amount of people that quote-unquote confessed to the crime after the murder took place is just insanity. I'll never understand confessing to a murder that you didn't commit. Even if you're sitting in prison with nothing to gain or lose. Like, what's the point? I would love for someone to explain that to me. But anyways, I think you'll enjoy it. Plus, I hope you have some comfort knowing the killer was caught. It took a while, almost half a decade, but he was convicted. So without further ado, let's jump into the kidnapping turned murder of the girl next door, the Carla Walker murder. In 1974, 17-year-old Carla Jan Walker was the sheer definition of the girl next door. She was gorgeous, blonde hair, big bright smile. She was on the cheerleading squad and was dating the quarterback of the football team. Carla and her boyfriend Rodney McCoy were attending Western Hills High School, where he was a senior and she was just a junior. Rodney planned to go off to college um, to Texas Tech, and the two had decided that Carla would follow him there after she graduated high school. The two were madly in love, and everyone knew it. They really were just a perfect couple. Carla's sister described her as a spitfire. She said that she was popular in school. She was well-liked. Everyone said she was super easy to get along with, and she definitely had no known enemies. Now, Carla grew up in this Fort Worth area, and it's kind of a place where everyone knows everyone. And the people you're in high school with were the same people you went to elementary school with. However, Rodney did not come to the Fort Worth area until starting high school. So he was the new kid, a little more quiet and reserved than Carla. But the two just gravitated towards each other pretty quickly and began a relationship. And I'd also like to mention that Carla's family adored Rodney. He was treated like another son of theirs. I mean, the two could have been in a Hallmark movie, if you ask me. But on Sunday, February 17th, 1974, Rodney and Carla attended a Valentine's Day dance at their high school. Following the dance, the two stopped by a Brunswick bowling alley so Carla could use the restroom. After Carla came back outside, the two just sat in the car talking. At some point... In the night, the two began kissing. Now, we find out later that Carla was leaning back against the passenger side door and Rodney was leaned across the front seat. It was during this time that the passenger side door was jerked open by someone, unknown to the couple. 
Initially, Rodney saw Carla falling out of the car, so he went to grab her. I'm sure his initial thoughts were just that the door had accidentally opened or something like that. However, he quickly realized that a man had opened the door to the car. So, some reports here say that this man told Rodney that he was going to kill him. But then in other reports, I've seen Rodney said the man grabbed Carla and then started hitting him over the head with a pistol. Rodney said he thought this man was shooting him, but he remembers vividly Carla saying, I'll go with you, just don't shoot him. When Carla was being pulled out of the car, she told Rodney to go get her dad. He remembered her saying this, but it was only a few seconds after that Rodney falls unconscious from being hit over the head. He would later say that he passed out before seeing Carla and this mystery attacker walk away. And I'll throw it in here too that some reports said the attacker did actually hold a gun to Rodney's head and pulled the trigger multiple times, but the gun never went off. So I'm assuming this that's when the man started hitting Rodney over the head with the gun. That may or may not be accurate, but I saw it, I think, one time. So, again, can't be clear on that, but it makes sense why Rodney thought he might have been shooting him or something like that. So, anyways, it's unclear how long after the attack it took for Rodney to wake up, but once he did, he immediately took off to Carla's parents' house. He would later say that he barely knew what he was doing. He said he almost crashed a couple times trying to get to Carla's house. As anyone would, I'm sure, obviously. When he arrived at the Walker family home, he was covered head to toe in blood. Carla's mother, Charlene, said she called an ambulance for Rodney while her husband drove to the bowling alley. Now, by the time Carla's father gets to the bowling alley, it's closed. But he just starts pounding on the door anyways, hoping someone will answer. And I'm assuming just looking for answers in general. But that same night, the family went to the police station and reported the kidnapping. Rodney told police that the man that attacked them was a clean-cut, slender young man, about 20, with short, cropped, wavy hair, who talked with a Texas draw and stood about 5 feet 11 inches tall. He said he was also wearing a shiny green sleeveless vest and a near-white cowboy hat. Okay, first of all, good for him. You never hear of an exact description of an attacker like that. Um... But not to burst your bubble, though, here, I, you know, props to Rodney, but we find out later who the killer was, like I've already told you, and he doesn't quite match that description, and I don't say he doesn't match it, his age is off um, by about 20 years, so, hey, I know some 40-year-olds that could look about 30, maybe not 20, but could look a good bit younger, so maybe that was the case here, but anyways, I don't want to dwell on that, so for the next few days, the family waited anxiously for the news um and Rodney was also freaking out waiting to see if police could not only find Carla but find the attacker because I'm sure he was worried that the attacker might could come back and kill him I mean he didn't know what might could happen you know but during those next few days police conducted an extensive search by foot by car helicopter and even horseback Keep in mind, this is Texas. I think they still do that today. This was actually one of the biggest searches that the Fort Worth Police Department had ever done up until this point. But just a few days after the vicious attack on Wednesday, February 20th, while two police officers were searching the area surrounding Benbrook Lake, Carla Walker's body was found in a culvert near the lake. Her body was found partially nude, 
Her parents had to identify her based on the jewelry found at the scene. This is before they even took, um, it's before the police officers even took the parents to see Carla's body. Police took to the local media stations to report the horrific finding. They stated they were leaving some information out of the media in order to help identify the killer, as most investigations have a situation like this. Police did, however, disclose the autopsy findings, which posted that Carla had been dead for two to about two and a half days and reported that she had been raped and strangled to death sometime on that Monday. Carla's brother Jim told a reporter that he remembered hearing his mother scream, and Roddy said he collapsed to the floor after hearing this news. So who do police look at? Of course, they start with everyone at Bowling Alley. They tried to find any enemies the couple might have had for some reason. But as I mentioned earlier, Carla certainly had no enemies. Now, I will mention that the state of Texas in the 1970s had the second highest rate of serial killers just behind California. So the killer could have been anyone. And that had to be the biggest challenge for police. It seemed like such a random attack, but also a pretty passionate one too, in my opinion. Now, before we get into all the suspects and get into all the bizarre characters of this story, to say the least, I would like to mention a party that Carla and Rodney supposedly attended on that Friday before this attack. It was Friday the 15th, just the day after Valentine's Day. We find out later who the killer is, like I said, and he seems to have no connection to this party. But for a reason I'll mention later, I would like to bring it up. So, Carla and Rodney attended a quote-unquote beer bust on Benbrook Lake. This is the same lake where her body was found. Now, I didn't know what in the world a beer bust was, but basically it's a party where beer is the main beverage consumed, and it's usually consumed in large quantities. This is typically for college students, um, college-age kids anyways, and there's usually about 50-plus people there. Certainly kind of out of the norm, I would think, for Rodney and Carla, based on what I've heard about the two. But I'm sure, you know, with Rodney being a senior, I mean, I'm sure the two go out and, you know, have friends that go to these parties. So I wouldn't say it's uncommon to their friends. So so it's my understanding that the two attended this party with another couple. Just something to do on a Friday night, I'm sure. Now, there was a slight incident that took place at this party. Apparently, while at the party, an older guy came up to Carla and started hitting on her. And this seemed to have caused a little bit of a problem between her and Rodney, but mainly just made the two very uncomfortable. And apparently this guy kind of antagonized Rodney at the party, but nothing seemed to appear, I mean, excuse me, nothing appeared to happen between the two guys. Now, after the party, a group of teenagers, including Carla and Rodney, went to a burger joint just right up the road from the beer bust. Not long after getting to the burger joint, the guy from the party that was giving Rodney and Carla a hard time shows up as well. Now, again, I believe nothing happens here. I think he kind of taunts them a little bit more and and just kind of makes them uncomfortable again. But again, nothing happens, nothing physical. Um, everything seems to go Fine, Carla and Rodney end up going home with no issues. All seemed to be well. 
But I will cir- I'll circle back around to this, as I mentioned earlier, um, how this party might possibly or might not really be relevant. Um, it's unclear, but I'd, I have a couple thoughts on it. But anyways, back to the suspects. And this is when it gets bizarre, like I mentioned. So initially, they had to double check the boyfriend, obviously, as they would. I mean, it was pretty obvious it wasn't him uh, based on his significant injuries um, he acquired to his head during the attack. Then there was a man by the name of Tommy Ray Neeland. He was 21 years old at the time. In that same year that Carla was killed, Tommy had attempted to kidnap a teenage girl in nearby Arlington and had tried to sexually assault her, but luckily she escaped. Neeland was identified by the girl, after which he confessed to committing three murders, one of which being Carla. After his confession, police made him take a polygraph test. That's when his story kind of fell through, and police just couldn't believe he was the one that committed the murder, nor did things add up either. So, unfortunately, investigators had to keep looking. After Tommy Neeland, police focused on a different man they were accusing of committing a series of burglaries in the area. He actually shocked investigators by saying, quote-unquote, I wondered when you were coming after me for Carla Walker. One of the detectives on Carla's case, Detective J.F. Terrell, said he nearly got the man to confess in 1975, but it was interrupted. And I'm not sure about the details of that here. That's kind of weird. But when Detective Terrell tried again in 1976, the man said, quote, you almost got me with that routine last time, but I've learned some things since then. A couple of years later, a man identified as Jimmy Dean Sasser told police that he had killed Carla Walker in 1977. Jimmy was even charged and indicted for the crime. But here we go again. Seven months later, Sasser was released from prison and said that he had lied about the murder because his marriage had fallen apart and he was depressed. I mean, really? So you think you need to go to prison for a murder you didn't commit? Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. Again, what is with people confessing to murders they don't they don't commit? I don't I just don't understand that. But regardless of what you know state of depression you're in, but oh well. At this point, investigators were at a loss, and the case went cold for nearly 40 years. It wasn't until after April of 2019 that police released a letter that they had said they received back in 1974. Why they didn't release it to the public until 2019, I'm not sure. I'm sure this is just one of those things they held back, but to me, this could have been a real big key in the investigation. Part of the letter was redacted. The body of it read, Quote, I killed Carla Walker in Benbrook. Sign 10100. Kind of like as his signature, I guess. And it ends with, P.S. It is hard to say, but it is true. Very weird, very odd. And it was sent directly to, I think, the detective working on the case. It was, it was addressed to him. It's understood that not much, if anything, really came from police releasing this letter. But it clearly showed the Fort Worth Police Department had been looking back into this case. So, that was exciting. Now, we know that originally, police had tried running DNA from a garment found at the crime scene. The garment being a bra that belonged to Carla. 
they had tried to run this DNA through the FBI's CODIS database. CODIS standing for Combined DNA Index System. This is essentially a huge database of all DNA collected pretty much from anywhere. Um, legally, anyways. This is um, it's a system that has helped solve cold cases since it was created back in 1990. Anyways, initially when the DNA from the bra was ran through CODIS, the search came up empty. However, in late September of just this past year, 2020, police announced that the DNA agency Othram had found a match to a relative or someone in the family of someone they had spoken to briefly back in 1974 regarding Carla's murder. That man's name was Glenn McCurley. So needless to say, police went to track this guy down immediately. At the time of the murder, police had looked at McCurley because he owned a 22 Ruger pistol, which matched a magazine found at the crime scene. In September of 2020, investigators collected DNA from Glenn McCurley's trash. They were able to confirm that his DNA was a match. So finally, after 46 years, police had the right guy for the crime. Now, Who the heck is this guy? What is his story? Well, first of all, Glenn lived in the area, reportedly just a block or two away from Carla, from where Carla lived. Now, as I mentioned earlier, police did look into this guy after Carla's murder because of the gun he had matching the gun used in the crime. Glenn told police back then that this gun had been stolen before the murder and supposedly he had not reported the gun stolen because he was an ex-convict. He had went to prison in 1961 for car theft. Now, in 1974, police dug a little deeper. They obtained his work schedule from the days leading up to the murder and the days following. The schedule showed that he was at work during the evening of the kidnapping and was off the next day. His wife was also out of town during the kidnapping, so it was certainly possible that Glenn could have committed the heinous crime. However, police could not place him at the scene, and with the lack of DNA testing at the time, there was just no physical evidence indicating he had came in contact with Carla Walker at all. But thank the Lord, after years of trying, detectives were able to collect DNA and match it to the McCurley family. And to clarify, that DNA collected narrowed down the search to a McCurley male, but they didn't have a DNA sample from Glenn specifically. That was until September 10th, 2020, when detectives went to the home of McCurley and his wife. He told investigators that he did not kill anyone, that he had not killed anyone, and he didn't know Carla Walker. He gave police a voluntary swab sample, and that matched the DNA found on Carla's clothes 100%. A warrant for capital murder was then obtained, and Glenn McCurley was taken into custody without incident. Jail records showed Glenn was being held in the Tarrant County Jail on a charge of capital murder with bonds set at $100,000. After the arrest was made, the Fort Worth Police Department conducted a press conference to announce the arrest. They said they believed the assault and murder were random and that Carla and Glenn did not know each other. Over the last four decades, police said it appears that Glenn had led a relatively normal life. He was married and had two children. They also made it clear that McCurley was not a suspect in any other crimes. 
What a relief for that poor family. Jim Walker, Carla's brother, joined police at the news conference and thanked investigators for never forgetting about his sister. While he said there were some dark times, obviously over the last four and a half decades, he wondered if anyone ever would be caught. He said he was happy and relieved to learn of the arrest. He said, quote, the word that came across my brain was finally, after 46 years, five months, and three days, we have a name, a face, and are working toward a complete resolution. He went on to say that he and his family were praying for the suspect's family and said that what happened to his sister was not their fault. Now, Glenn McCurley was interviewed by a local radio station from his jail cell. He was straight up asked what led him to kill Carla Walker. And his story, to say the least, is a little disgusting. But he said that night he was driving around, parking and drinking. He said he made his way to the bowling alley parking lot where he saw Carla and Rodney's car parked. He said he excuse me, he said, quote, he was hitting on her and I was drinking beer in the parking lot, alleging that he witnessed Rodney assaulting Carla. He said, I saw him, he was screaming and I went over there and opened the door and knocked him off of her. Now, this is when I get kind of sick to my stomach. He said he pulled Carla to his car He said, quote, we talked for a while and she calmed down and she said she was thankful for me getting him away from her. He goes on to say that, quote, she gave me a hug and I gave her a kiss. I mistook her for something else. And then he just kind of pauses and says, I didn't mean to do it. Now, let's unpack this. So do you believe this story? I 100% want to say that I don't buy it. Not his version of it anyways. Here's what I'm thinking. And I would love to know your thoughts, as I always do in these cases. I think if his story had truth to it, maybe he thought Rodney was leaned across the front seat hurting Carla. He's supposedly drunk and not in the right state of mind. Maybe what he thought he saw wasn't actually what was going on. Then my brain goes to, what if Rodney was hurting Carla? What if they had gotten into a fight in the car, maybe over what had happened at that party the Friday night before? I would say it's a stretch, but you know how toxic teenage love can be. (laughs) And maybe this Glenn guy really did think he was saving Carla. But by pulling her into his car and not calling for help or getting her to her parents' house, it's not the answer, right? Again, we know he wasn't in the right state of mind, not that that's an excuse, if this story is even true, but still. Now, let's discuss this hug and kiss situation. Hypothetically speaking, let's say Glenn McCurley saved this poor girl from her abusive boyfriend and he really intended on getting her out of the situation. He went a little too far, obviously, with hitting him over the head, knocking him unconscious, but whatever. We can all picture this scenario in our heads, right? A girl is being attacked by her boyfriend and some hero bystander comes and saves her. She just needs to calm down and maybe then he planned on getting her home. Who knows? So that's what happens. She calms down. The two chat about the situation and then maybe some other stuff. And and the two seem to be getting along. 
Now, maybe Glenn starts to believe in his drunken state of mind that this young teenage girl might actually like him. Maybe he mistakes her friendliness as flirtiness and decides to make his move. Well, obviously, she's going to reject him because he is twice her age. And then maybe that pisses him off and he decides to take his anger out on her by beating her, raping her, and killing her. All in a fit of rage. See, I could buy that part of the story. I could genuinely see her getting in the car with this guy, hoping to maybe calm him down, tell him everything's fine and she's fine, maybe even stroking his ego a little bit by saying, thank you, you're right for getting me out of the situation, I appreciate that. You know, whatever she thinks she needs to do to, to say, alleviate the situation. Because obviously this man is violent, he just beat her boyfriend unconscious, so maybe it is true. But then a part of me wants to think that this guy was just delusional from the get-go. He saw what he thought was an attack. It wasn't. And he reacted violently. He grabbed this poor girl and took her. Again, maybe thinking he was going to do the right thing. But had sexual intentions the entire time. From the time he grabbed her. I don't know. It's hard to really believe one way or another here. But either way, we know police have the right guy. And finally, Carla Walker will be able to rest in peace. And peace has been brought to her family. Wow. Welcome back to The Killer Kind. Have you missed me? (laughs) That was a tough one. And more so just head scratching. I mean, the crime was pretty cut and dry. But the bizarre false confessions by various men and this other guy who eluded police for nearly 50 years. He's finally caught and then he gives this delusional story. I don't know. This one just hurt my brain. (laughs) But I hope you guys liked it. I don't know if there will be a trial for this case or not. I mean, this man's 77 years old. I mean, surely he wouldn't put himself or anyone else through that. Um, I'm hoping he just pleads guilty and goes goes on to prison. You know, like, just accept your fate, dude. You lived a full life, you know. Go go to prison. (laughs) Either um, Either way, I'm sure I'll have an update for you guys soon. Now, before I leave... I wanted to remind everyone to please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening and be sure to give a five-star review if you're able to. Both of these just help push my podcast to other listeners and it just helps get the word out. And I'd like to say another thank you to everyone who has been listening to the podcast this past year. We got over 3,000 listens just before 2021 and my next milestone goal. I'm hoping we get to 5,000 listens this year. And if we do that, then I will definitely be doing another giveaway like I did when I hit 1,000 listens. So stay tuned for that on the Instagram page. If you're new here, the Instagram page is killer.kind.pod. I'd love to hear from you over there or just follow me in order to stay up to date on anything new and exciting. I've got some big plans for this little podcast this year, so stay tuned for that. But with all of that said, that'll do it for me this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Everyone, please continue to stay safe out there, and I'll catch you back here in two weeks. Bye, guys.